0: Welcome to the Sentac podcast, the Society for Ear, Nose, and Throat Advancement in Children is a collective group of like-minded healthcare professionals involved in the care of children with otolaryngology, hearing, speech, and swallowing disorders. We are uniquely composed of physicians and allied healthcare professionals, including otolaryngologists, pediatricians, basic scientists, audiologists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. My name is Javen Nation. I am the communications director for Sentak. This first season of our podcast, we will focus on having conversations with different teams and team members that provide specialized care for children. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome. Uh, today, I have members of the. Pediatric non-cleft velopharyngeal incompetence clinic at Dallas Children's with me, aka the VPI team. Today I'm joined by Ron Mitchell, uh, professor of otolaryngology and pediatrics, uh, chief of pediatric otolaryngology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I have Yan Fuku, assistant professor of otolaryngology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I have Courtney Vance Slot, uh, speech and language pathologist at Dallas Children's. And Caitlin Lenz, speech and language pathologist at Dallas Children's. Again, all members of the Pediatric non cleft Belopharyngeal Incompetence Clinic. Guys, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having us. Yeah. Great to join you. Thank you very much. So we're gonna talk about VPI today. Uh, before we uh, go any further, let's just let's just kind of define um, some basic things about VPI. Um, can can one of you guys tell us, you know, what is velopharyngeal insufficiency and why is it a problem?
1: So velopharyngeal incompetency is um is sort of an umbrella term for children or or adults even who have resonance problems. And so there are a couple of words that can be used interchangeably, although there is some debate over which term to use under what circumstance, but VPI often is, um, stands for velopharyngeal insufficiency or incompetency or inadequacy. And those can, each of those different terms really refers more to the cause of the resonance disorder. So, but we tend to use the term VT, VPI just as sort of the umbrella term, meaning that there is some problem with the child's
0: resonance. All right, uh, what makes diagnosing and managing VPI difficult?
2: Yeah, I think from kind of another speech um, perspective on this is VPI can be um, kind of one of those things that's hard to grasp perceptually. I know as therapists for speech, we undergo kind of a lot of training on listening for um, VPI, what's hypernasality, what's hyponasality, um, and kind of then what are the other just general speech characteristics um, that a child may have um, that may kind of sound like VPI or or seem similar to VPI that kind of coexist. So I think that can make it hard um, to grasp, you know, as a term, just what does speech sound like? Since we do all kind of sound a little bit different when we talk too.
0: How does a team approach improve VPI care? So
3: I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, I I think VPI cannot be done without a team approach. So there is, you know, we we specifically look at non-cleft VPI, and this is a group of children um, who come under different categories, but they all need a, a an approach to care that involves many people even beyond the the speech pathologist and the ENT so you know we have to have good communication with uh, the geneticist obviously we we um, we use other aspects of the ENT team we work very closely with our plastics colleagues who do the cleft BPI but in order to provide uh, the patients with um, you know, good diagnostic and good treatment of VPI, there's got to be excellent communication between specifically the speech pathologist and the pediatric laryngologist, but it goes way beyond that. You need a geneticist, you need, a, you know, hearing evaluation and often you need other clinics in the hospital that you liaise with very closely. So, So tell me more about your team. Uh, when was it established? So, uh, so, th- so the team really started when I first uh, moved to Dallas, which was uh, just over ten years ago, um, and and, th- and there was a feeling that uh, many of these kids were either uh, poorly diagnosed or poorly treated. I I've always had a tr- an interest in VPI, and through working with speech pathology and plastics, we decided that the best approach here would be to separate into the cleft and non-cleft. And because clefts in our hospital are primarily uh, uh, repaired by the plastics team, it seemed reasonable that the non-clefts would come to us. But we do work very closely with them. With this, we identified speech pathologists who were interested in it, um, train them in endoscopy, uh, and really, it's been kind of a mainstay of what we do in uh, pediatric otolaryngology.
0: Yeah, so so tell me, who who are the specific members of the VPI team?
3: So everyone on this uh, on this uh, podcast are members of the team, but beyond that, you need schedulers you need um a, you know a team manager you need a nurse involved uh, so it, you know it's important to have a kind of a global view of identifying the children diagnosing them and treating them many of them have radiological investigations you need a link there too so it's so it's it's really kind of a big picture approach to something that is relatively unusual, uh, often misdiagnosed, uh, and often confuses the care team and the families.
0: Yeah, so so how often do you guys uh, meet as a team um, and see patients?
3: So we, we, we actually have a joint clinic one half day a month. Um, Dr. Ku and I alternate them. Before he joined us, I used to do it every month. Uh, and in between, if there are special cases, we may get together for specific patients. But this is not, VPI is not something that is going to occupy the majority of your week. It, it's, um, you know, it's something you want to think of in terms of, you know, how to best use your time. So, for example, we have two speech pathologists and a pediatric laryngologist in clinic. Uh, We've been through different versions of this, where there was one speech pathologist and one pediatric otolaryngologist. We tried actually at one point having two pediatric otolaryngologists and two speech pathologists, but for us, it works best with two uh, speech pathologists and one pediatric otolaryngologist.
0: And so how many patients can you see in that half day and how much time do you give each
3: visit? We we will schedule somewhere between six and 12 per half day. I think 12 really stretches us. Six is very comfortable and often we end up with something in between. Yeah, and generally how long does does a visit take? So it can take anything from half an hour to two hours, but it doesn't mean that they're all involved with us for the whole of that time, they may go for a hearing test. They may, um, they may have had that day uh, what we call a palate study, which is a fluoroscopic examination, and then see us afterwards. So there may be many kind of uh, moves within that uh, that session. Uh, uh, so some very short, some maybe, little, but I don't think it's ever longer than two hours that they stay there.
0: Yeah. Okay
3: and And just to get a little deeper into
0: kind of how how your clinic is uh, run um, are there are there any specific parameters around who can refer patients in the clinic um, if they have to have an established BPI diagnosis or have done a certain amount of speech therapy prior
2: so um, yeah, that brings up a good point is that kind of, you know, an adjunct to our team is a lot of um, community speech therapists, whether it's a school um, speech therapist or um, someone within, you know, our outpatient setting that refers. So um, we've definitely kind of um, have spoken at conferences to make sure that we can make sh- get any kid kind of routed um, to our clinic since it is more of a, of a specialized um, um, team approach. And so referrals, um, they, our families um, are able to self-refer um, to, so they can, um, sometimes we get families that have, you know, gone on Dr. Google and looked this term up and Um, they are here um, for kind of that assessment. And sometimes we get referrals because the treating therapist may have been working with them um, for a while and um, is concerned or maybe they're um, new on their caseload and they're really kind of wondering, um, you know, what are their their parameters with making progress um, with speech? So they'll kind of refer to us. So Um, we do get a a good variety of referrals, um, which I think um, is helpful.
0: So you guys have taken more of the approach of uh, kind of keeping the doors wide open, making it easy for the patients to get into clinic.
2: Definitely. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of them, you know, because VPI can be so unique and sometimes even speech therapists um, have questions about what they might be hearing too. It's, it's definitely helpful to, be able to talk about it um, as a group and, and make sure um, we're making the best recommendations for that child and that family.
0: Have you had any issues with that, where you run into a uh, an issue where uh, the clinic is full of patients who don't have BPI, who self-referred because Google got them worried?
2: Certainly, yes, <laughs> that has happened. Um, Sometimes um, because there are so many other diagnoses with and it's when it comes to speech and language disorders, um, they can often kind of coexist or maybe, um, you know, kind of compete with each other. So we um, have received referrals, um, you know, developmental delays or maybe autism or um, phonological processes, Um, but then we also get patients that are there, um, with true kind of a non-cleft VPI that are really happy to have found, um, a place to get, um, treatment with.
0: So take me through, uh, and and I, I'm going to use the word typical, and I know this never applies well, but if, if you think of your clinic, take me kind of, tell me, tell me who's like your typical patient in that clinic. Uh, what I mean by that is it, is it a, you know. Non-syndromic, you know, uh, typical kid with no comorbidities. Where there's some concern, or is it mostly kids who are syndromic or have genetic deficiencies? Who? What age group? Kind of, kind of. And I know it's hard to to say typical, but just kind of generally tell me what type of patient you see in that clinic.
1: Yeah, so we do get a broad range of concerns. We sometimes will get infants who maybe have nasal regurgitation, and there are some questions about whether there is a submucous cleft palate there or how the palate is functioning and how that may affect feeding. We certainly get the, the younger kids who may be a little bit delayed in their speech and language development and the family for whatever reason is concerned that maybe the palate isn't working and that's part of the problem. Um, we get some older kids who may have some undiagnosed uh, developmental delays or autism and, um, there's just sort of some question about what exactly is going on here. Sometimes we do actually get some children who have undiagnosed syndromes, particularly 22q11.2 deletion syndrome. That's the most common. Uh, we do get some children with some head and neck cancers, um, some you know undiagnosed cleft palates, submucous cleft palates. We also see a lot of children with Um, apraxia of speech or other speech conditions that can sometimes present, like a child who has BPI. So there are a lot of different things that need to be teased apart. And because it can be so complicated, we sort of intentionally cast a wide net so that we can um, make sure that we are seeing and helping the kids that we truly can help with. If, if it's not truly a VPI, then we do want to make sure we get routed, get them routed appropriately so they can get the help or the answers that they're looking for. Yeah,
0: excellent. Um, all right. So, so take me through a, a typical visit. Um, a patient comes to see you guys. Uh, they come to the room. Who's, who's in the room with them? Which studies do you do? How do you decide which studies to do? Um, and, and what all goes on before that, uh, that patient goes home?
3: Hey, Caitlin, the floor is yours.
2: Sure thing. So, um, Dr. Mitchell mentioned earlier, we usually, the speech group tries to see them um, first to kind of get an idea, you know, how were they referred, if they're a new patient or a new um, referral, Um, kind of collect a little bit of case history information from the family. Um, Usually, caregivers are there. Um, for the appointment, um, kind of get an understanding of why they're here or what they know about VPI. Um, because often they might say we're here because someone told us there might be something with the palate or someone told us this term, velopharyngeal insufficiency, which is very long term and the families just aren't quite sure what they're really getting an assessment for. So um, we kind of walk through just general history, medical history. Um, when it comes to our kind of perceptual speech sample, um, for us kind of that, that perceptual sample is what we consider kind of our gold standard in rating um, different qualities of resonance. So terms like hypernasality, hyponasality, nasal air emission, um, and kind of what the what the quality or acceptability is in their speech. And those terms were ta- are taken from um, kind of a, a speech group, Americleft, which works to kind of standardize some of that um, rating. But we're also um, from a speech sample looking at kind of their general consonant inventory. Um, meaning, you know, what sounds can they say um, and seeing if that's age appropriate for them. And then we're also just looking at kind of general whoop, language milestones. Um, so um, whether they're meeting um, general kind of speech and language development milestones. If they are um, a verbal communicator, we record a speech sample. So we do have kind of a list of some standardized words, um, some standardized sentences um, or phrases, kind of depending on um, that child's communication level. Um, and we will record it. So that way we have it to listen to. If they um, may have surgeries, we can kind of compare pre and post. Um, yeah, give, us, we, give we, us an example
0: of a, a, a speech phrase you'd have a child say.
2: Sure. So speech phrases, um, when it comes to the sentences, what they've done is they kind of um, almost are like tongue twisters where they'll put a lot of the same sound in a sentence with a lot of different vowels. So that way we can listen to what we call oral pressure consonants. So any sound that comes out of our mouth. So an example might be puppy will pull a rope, or buy baby a bib, Um, and those are kind of words that we'll use to be able to then assess um, both speech, articulation, and resonance.
0: So for a kid with BPI, is is it those, uh, did you call them oral pressure consonants? Did I get that right? Uh, Are those the sounds that will be the most off?
2: Definitely. Um, So what happens um, when we have kind of that severe hypernasality, those oral pressure consonants start to sound like nasals. So M's and N's. So you can think your sounds like a B and a P or a T or a D start to sound more like an M or an N. So daddy might sound like nanny and bye-bye might sound like my-my. Um, which certainly can cause intelligibility issues um, for a child if most of their sounds are M's or N's.
0: And if they're hyponasal, how will that be different?
2: And so, yes, if they're hyponasal, it's kind of the opposite in that those M's and N's that should be coming out of your nose are then um, kind of blocked, muffled, And those will start to sound more like they're coming out of your mouth. So often people kind of attribute it to like if you've ever been sick and stuffed up and you're kind of talking like you have your nose pinched off. Um, So a word like um, night night might sound a little bit more like um, a a D or a T, um, kind of a night night because you're just so stuffed up.
0: Right, right. Um, so, something I use, and I'm not sure if it's useful or not, is um, plugging their nose during speech to see if it if it sounds different. Is this something you guys use to help uh, differentiate between hyper and hyponasal?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, as speech pathologists who work on a craniofacial team and who work in this non-cleft VPI clinic, we have the benefit of listening to this for you know 40 hours a week. So. Um, a speech pathologist who has a lot of experience with this will be able to tell right away. So, and just like Caitlin was talking about, we have some certain sentences that are really important tools in our tool belt. And so these sentences are organized in such a way that makes it really easy for us to determine right off the bat if there is hypernasality, hyponasality, nasal air emission, Um, maybe some cul-de-sac resonance. We can also determine the level of the hypernasality. Is it mild? Is it moderate? Is it borderline? Is it severe? So we're really able to, by using these sentences, we're really able to get some good quantitative data on what the child is producing.
3: So Jovan, I I think she's saying no. (laughs) In a very nice way. But, but 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 I do think it's useful in a general setting to, you know, block the nose and ask them to say things if you're not sure. It may give you some additional information. I don't think it's the kind of level of information we want in a VPI clinic.
0: Right, right. All right. So, Courtney, you, you mentioned um, that by listening to the speech sample, you can determine the severity of the VPI. Can you get more specific about uh, how you do that?
1: Yeah, so um, typically if if in our speech sample, if we hear that a certain class of vowels um, are affected and we call those high vowels, so maybe like the E sound and the OO sound, if those are the only vowels that sound hypernasal, then we might say that that child has mild hypernasality. If we hear that all vowels are affected, so the high vowels and some of the lower vowels like ah, then we can say that the child probably has moderate hypernasality. So all of the vowels are affected. If we start to hear some of those, um, some of the consonants affected, like Caitlin was talking about earlier where where, um, Mm -hmm. puppy might sound like mummy, If we start to hear those, then we know that it really is severe hypernasality that we're hearing and that that will of course start to affect the child's intelligibility. Some of the milder forms of hypernasality may not affect the child's speech intelligibility, uh, but there is certainly a difference to the way they sound. And so um, for some families, this is very uh, bothersome to them. It's just not something that they can tolerate. Um, and for other families, it just really isn't um, anything that they're super concerned about. So we really do have to take a lot of the family perspective into this before we, um, you know, kind of start the process of, of diagnosing and talking about treatments.
0: Okay. All right. So, so going back to clinic, um, patient comes in, uh, you collect the history, you collect a speech sample. Quick question on that. How do you guys do that? Do you, do you have a special recording device? Do you use iPads or iPhones?
2: Yeah, so we have um, a, a high quality camera um, with a, a big microphone attached to it. So that way we can pick up um, their speech sample and we just record it and, and download it to the patient's chart.
0: Oh, interesting. That's really cool. So, so later you can go back and kind of listen to their, their voice and see how they come along.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Oh, very cool.
3: Okay. And so then um, where do you go next? Yeah, so so from our standpoint as so after the speech pathologist walks in, evaluates the patient, uh, we normally have a discussion um, and uh, they usually make their recommendation for a new patient because sometimes we see follow-ups and we already decided what we're going to do Um, and you know it's basically a joint decision. I mean uh, They may say that this child will definitely not tolerate a scope, or I think a point that's well worth remembering is that you cannot evaluate VPI if the child does not cooperate and can give you a speech sample. So sometimes at one one extreme it's, you know, the child is nonverbal, um, and we cannot evaluate them by any means. There are there may be a child who may not may not cooperate with a scope, but is likely to cooperate with what we call a pallet study. Uh, and it's basically a joint decision as to where we, you know, where we go with this. Uh, and some children will get both.
0: Okay. So, so if you think they'll be cooperative, you'll do a scope. If not, you'll do a pallet study. What's the situation where you do both? Like what, what would happen on the scope potentially that make you wanna do
3: a you know fluoroscopy study after? So Courtney, do you want to address that when
1: Sure. So sometimes we can hear a child's and we can hear speech and we can make sort of some some guesstimations of what we think the VP port is gonna look like when they're talking. And we may get in there and look on the scope and see something that doesn't quite match what we're hearing. And so in that case, we might wanna do a pallet study, um, which would give us just information from another angle. One benefit of a pallet study is that it can also show you the, the angle of elevation Um, to see how high those levators are pulling up against the back of the throat and so that really can sort of sometimes can really help inform which sort of surgeries may be the most appropriate for the child.
0: Is there anything else that thoroscopy, uh, any other information it gives you that you don't get from the scope?
1: Yes, in fact um, we've seen several kids who when we do a scope it looks like they have really good closure, it looks like the VP port is closing well um, but what we're not hearing doesn't quite seem to match. So whenever we do fluoroscopy, what we actually see is that the back of their tongue, the base of their tongue is actually propping up the velum up against the posterior pharyngeal wall. And so for kids like that, we um it might be confusing. It might look like they don't have epi when in fact, they really do
2: hmm. Yeah,
0: you know, I've seen this um, where you know, I have a, a child during a scope and it looks like the velum's open during their speech. But then I see them swallow, and then they close the velum. And then I'm asking myself, uh, is it just the way they're speaking, or is it just the tongue that's, that's closing the velum during the swallow? Uh, have you come across it? I'm sure you see that all the time. How do you think about that?
1: So that's a really good point. Um, we really have to be careful when we're doing imaging to make sure that um, we're not assessing swallow. So swallowing is very different and involves a lot of different muscles kind of outside of what we typically see for VP closure. So we also wanna make sure that the child is not crying um, or screaming, which um, is also important because we do know that, the, that VP closure doesn't always happen well. We're not gonna get a really um, a really great view of what the musculature is capable of doing. Um, also, we have to be very careful what's, what words and phrases we're using to assess. There are some speech conditions that will um, intentionally leave the VP port open, and that's part of the articulation disorder that they have. So they may be perfectly capable of having good closure of the VP port, but in, in connected speech, they're not doing it because of these articulation errors. So um, a, a speech... Um, a speech sample ahead of time and sort of a well thought out um, word list or phrase list before doing the the imaging is kind of helpful to to hopefully reduce some of that confusion when you're imaging.
0: Interesting. Okay. So before you even do the, the scope of philosophy, you have a sense of which phrases you're going to have them say.
1: Yeah. So we do that ahead of time and I'll give you an example. So um, so what we commonly hear children produce or what a common concern that we hear is, it sounds like there's a lot of air coming out of their nose. So, for instance, that tends to happen most on the S sound. So the word sissy might sound like <laughs> And so you hear this actually that you hear the air coming out of the nose. Sometimes you can even see it with the facial expressions that they make. We know that most of the time that's actually an articulation disorder and isn't really related to true VP function. It can be related to um, velopharyngeal dysfunction, but oftentimes it's not. We do see it in children who don't have VP dysfunction. So what we'll see on imaging for a child like that is that there is really good VP closure for all of the, the speech sounds But then whenever they produce an S sound, suddenly you see that VP port stay wide open and then they'll move to the next consonant and they're able to close it. So so we will sort of come up with a list of words and phrases that we wanna assess that we know the child is capable of producing with correct oral pressure before we start imaging.
2: All
0: right, Um, before we go into nasal endoscopy, Caitlin already gave us some examples of, of some good phrases. Can can you give us give us maybe one or two more that I can take home and and use tomorrow?
1: Yeah. So we um we typically will assess several classes of sounds. So Caitlin said um, use the p and the b, and those are stop consonants. So those sounds require you to build up pressure behind your lips and then release it suddenly. There's another class of sounds called fricatives, and so the place of constriction is in the mouth, and it um, you use your lips or your tongue to sort of direct a steady stream of air. So, for instance, some of the the sentences that we might use for that are "Sissy sees the sun in the sky." Uh, we might use the the Z or the um, the SH as well because those are also fricatives.
0: What's, what's a good example of a, a Z phrase?
1: Okay, so off the record, I have to do them in order. So we have 24 sentences. Oh, and if wow. Okay. We have to do, if we have to do them out of order, I can't remember any of them. So <laughs> <laughs>
2: fair enough, fair enough. Zoe Wait. has roses. That's right. Zoe has roses. Uh, All right.
0: <laughs> Sissy sees the sun in the sky and Zoe sees roses.
1: Zoe has roses.
0: Has roses. Okay, excellent. All right. Thank you for that. Um, let's let's talk about the nasal endoscopy. Um, uh, Fu, can you can you take us through um, kind of your nasal endoscopy exam in detail, uh, what you're looking for, and kind of your thought process while you're doing it?
4: Yeah, so you know the nasal endoscopy uh, is a little bit different than a regular nasal pharyngoscopy you would do. Um, instead of trying to aim for the floor of the nose and staying under the inferior turbinate. You actually generally want to try to get above the inferior turbinate, just below the middle turbinate, because that allows you to kind of look down onto the velum, so you get a better view of the entire velum, and you can kind of see where the uh, nasal emission is coming from. Um, So the things you want to look for, you know, again, once you kind of get the child calm enough, and you know, not crying or screaming, you have them, you know, speak the speech samples that the speech language pathologists have picked out. And you kind of look for where you see bubbling or where you you see lack of full closure. So most commonly it's in the center central area, but sometimes you see it on the lateral ports. Um, And then you kind of look and see how big that gap is. If it's a very, very small gap or a very large gap. Um, And so those are kind of the main things you focus on. All right. Um,
0: And then how how do you assess gap size? That's always kind of one of the questions I have. I guess, you know, how do you decide? Is it a millimeter or more? Do you, do you place your port through it or uh, are you just kind of eyeballing it?
4: For me, it's more kind of eyeballing it, you know, especially a lot of these 22Q kids, um, they have very minimal palate movement. So for those kids, it's usually pretty obvious because their palate's barely moving at all. And then, uh, you know, other kids who are non syndromic, you'll see their palate's moving um, and there's just really uh, one or two little bubbles coming out the middle. So to me, that usually looks like a much smaller gap. But to me, I kind of eyeball it. I don't know if Dr. Mitchell has a more scientific way that he approaches it.
3: I mean, mean, though I do not, and I'm not sure that uh, anyone, I mean, you can do percentage closure. I sometimes would, uh, but that's mostly for documentation. In terms of surgical planning, I think you're looking at two groups of kids, one who have very minimal closure and one who close, but not completely.
0: Yeah. And, and is there anything else you do? Do you ever put like saline in the nose to help with bubbling or is our secretion no. enough generally? No. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so, so tell me, you know, so let's say we have a new patient comes in the clinic um, and I, and I know, you know, a lot of this depends on what you see, um, but is there sort of a general approach to, to managing like a new VPI diagnosis? Um, do, you, do you generally have most of these patients try speech therapy first? Are there situations where
4: you'd recommend surgery first? I think a lot of it depends on where they're coming from. So, you know, if it's a family that came from a speech therapist where they've been working for a long time and we see them and they have a pretty significant gap, you know, we won't all, you know, sometimes those kids we can just offer surgery. But if it's a kid who say maybe it's like a post-adenoidectomy, um, you know, with a pretty minimal gap, um, who hasn't really worked with speech therapy yet, I think those kids, it's worth giving them a shot and have them work with speech therapy to see if they can, Kind of learn to compensate um, before you know going to surgery.
0: And is is there a general amount of time you want them to do speech therapy prior to surgery?
3: So, 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 so I, I think I don't want to speak for our speech therapists, but I think it's important to distinguish two things. A lot of the speech therapy is actually directed at improving articulation. You know, um, how much speech therapy is is helpful for closing the gap is questionable, I think, but we have two experts here, so I don't want to speak on their behalf, but but I think um, one thing I have seen in VPI clinics and in presentations is when you run out of ideas, you give them another six months of speech therapy, I think that's wrong, unless what you're targeting is better articulation. But. Courtney and um, uh, Caitlin, you could, uh, please speak to that. Yeah, Caitlin. our sure.
2: sure thing. Yeah, and so I think that's where, um, you know, after our assessment, we're kind of constantly um, trying to decipher, you know, what's, um, what is their resident status? What is their articulation status? Because an assessment for us will kind of yield the treatment plan for us. Um, so, Knowing the imaging results, um, if there is something truly structural where that VP port is not closing, um, we know that you know speech therapy won't achieve any sort of um, results structurally. So we can't target anything that will help that closure. But um, in those cases, you know, a surgery would be offered, and then kind of a plus or minus to speech therapy, dependent on maybe what their articulation errors were, um, even what their general language development is, knowing that those are kind of goals that we can work towards um, addressing from a speech standpoint. Um, But knowing, um, you know, say we maybe don't get a great speech sample, maybe the child's just a little bit too young or has something um, called compensatory speech errors, where they really have no true oral consonant. Um, our assessment is, is um, one that we wouldn't feel confident recommending surgery for, because there's still a lot of articulation errors and speech-related goals that need to be addressed first before we can really kind of do that full assessment for VPI. So I think that can always be a little bit of a gray area too um, because we need to be able to do a thorough assessment so we can make kind of that um, treatment plan um, from there. I don't know if Courtney has other thoughts to add. No, I think that's a really good point. The other
1: thing that I might add is, is sometimes in the session Um, If we suspect that that, uh, the child's errors are more related to articulation than a true VPI, we'll do some stimulability strategies and things with them there in the session um, to see kind of how far we can get. And if we're really able to see some improvement there, then oftentimes we'll um, ask the family to take a video of, of us doing that and then either have them practice some of those strategies at home or send them to the, the treating speech therapist. We do work a lot with the other, with the community-based therapist as well and try to get their input and um, kind of let them know what we're seeing and what our plan is. So we have we have several kids that are sort of on an ongoing, um, sort of ongoing monitoring as we're sort of waiting to figure out maybe what our next steps should be.
0: Okay. And so, um, you know, let's say we're now at the point where um, you guys are recommending surgery. How how do you guys come to that decision? Is it a, a multidisciplinary decision? And when the decision is made for surgery, how do you decide which type of surgery?
4: So, you know, usually after we've done the scope exam, um, you know, they've done their speech assessment, we've done the scope exam, we're going to step out and we'll kind of rehash or recap everything we kind of saw and you know they kind of go over what they saw with the speech and whether or not they feel like this is um you know something that would benefit from peace therapy or if they think that again like we like we talked about if um the gap is just too large and they think surgery would be recommended and so then you kind of look back at the scope exam and based on the size of the gap and the location kind of choose what surgery you want to do and like i said most kids, the gap is right in the middle, so central. Um, if it's a very small gap, for example, like a kid who had, you know, BPI after adenoidectomy, um, you know, kind of the least invasive option is doing what's called a posterior wall augmentation. And so there's a lot of different materials that this is done with. Um, you know, people used to use fat, temporary filler. Uh, I think most commonly now, the two, or sorry, now the two most common materials are alloderm, which is what we use here. And some people are using something called deflux which is actually a uh, polymer that's used in urology. They use it for vesicoureteral reflux because they inject it at that junction and it kind of causes fibrosis and people have started using that for VPI as well. That works well, again, like I said, for small central gaps. Um, And then uh, another population uh, is kids with submucous cleft. So the kind of classical triad for this is the bifid uvula, zona pellucida which is really just a uh, lack of levator valley palatini fibers coming across the midline um, and vpi and so these children usually it's you know it's a combination of the palate not moving well because of the levators as well as it being too short so uh, for these children we usually recommend a furlough palatoplasty which is not going to get too much into it but it's essentially you do two z-plasties one on the oral mucosa one on the nasal mucosa and the goal is to reorient the levators back into a way where they are coming across the palate and then also lengthening the palate to kind of help with closure. Um, And then, you know, I think kind of the workhorse or the majority of the surgery we do is what's called a posterior pharyngeal flap. So this works really well for 22Q11 kids because they have large gaps, minimal palate movement because this kind of provides the most bulk um, when you're trying to treat VPI. And so this is kind of a superiorly based flap where you um, lift the mucosa and the um, down to the prevertebral fascia posteriorly. And you lift that up and you, the essentially the idea is you rotate that to, you know, at the level of velopharyngeal closure uh, to help provide that closure. And then I think kind of the two key points are to make sure you get it high enough because if it's too low, it's not going to help provide closure and then you want to make sure you are leaving some space laterally otherwise you're going to cause complete nasopharyngeal stenosis um so generally we'll leave in stents either overnight or um for longer and these stents are usually just endotracheal tubes that kind of help uh, keep those lateral ports open so we don't cause complete um, stenosis at those at those lateral ports
0: yeah that's great and then um How do do you approach um, speech therapy after surgery? Is there a certain amount of time you wait and is there uh, a a different approach after the surgery?
2: Yeah, so really when it comes to speech um, after surgery, what what happens in our facilities is we typically see them post-op, meaning maybe anywhere like three weeks or um, kind of a month or two after surgery. And then at that visit, we can kind of reassess the speech um, because if it's true, just VPI, um, true hypernasality and with a surgery, um, if there were no kind of pre-existing articulation errors or or anything like that, um, the the surgery is really kind of what we should see success with. Um, So we should see kind of changes in speech. Um, Now, sometimes those changes might not be noticeable immediately after, since there can be some kind of post-op healing um, and some recovery. Um, But that's kind of when we assess and see if that's something that we're in a spot where we kind of need to refer for speech therapy for some of those articulation errors, um, or if we're in a position where um, we're gonna kind of see them post-op with some imaging and see how that palate is, is doing after surgery.
0: Yeah, excellent. All right. Um, so, so the next questions I'm going to ask um, are a little bit more philosophical. Uh, we'll kind of step away from the, the clinic uh, in general. And so you know, I just kind of want to ask you guys, and anybody can answer this, you know, uh, what do you think are the, the, the general shortcomings in current BPI care? Uh, and where do you think
3: things will be in, in 10 to 20 years? uh, Do do, do you want me to, I'll start off addressing the the challenges have always been the same. Um, uh, This is a group of children who are frequently not recognized by the vast majority of otolaryngologists, speech pathologists, uh, pediatricians, so what we need more of is awareness of who's more likely to be in this category, and how do you quickly uh, send them to the clinic? Uh, the you know, I would encourage nationally to have more clinics who have a very open approach. You're going to see a lot of kids with articulation problems, and you're going to see people with vocal nodules. and so I think the challenge is to be more receptive and particularly for otolaryngologists, this is not a high yield surgical clinic. This is not somewhere where you see 12 patients in the afternoon and eight of them are scheduled for surgery. You may see 12 and none of them are scheduled for surgery. So there needs to be a certain type of person who appreciates that. In terms of where we go in the future, you know, I I would separate that into within the U.S. and outside the U.S., uh, and certainly developing countries. Uh, I I think within the U.S. there's going to be more multidisciplinary clinics, more speech therapists who are at the level that Caitlin and Courtney are at, who basically... you know, are, are basically telling us what needs to be done more than we're telling them what needs to be done. So they're, they're directing the clinic because their expertise is so much greater than any pediatric uh, um in this field. Um, surgically, evaluation and so on, I think we'll have new material, we'll have better outcomes research, We really need to ask some very important questions. When should we lengthen the palate? When should we uh, use a sphincter surgery that we didn't mention? When should we use a a posterior pharyngeal flap? And most importantly, does it matter? Because there's some suggestion that if you're good at one form of surgery, you will get great results regardless of which one it is. But that's my two cents. Mm, That's great. I I think um, um, just for developing countries and so on, I think automating speech evaluation is the future. You know, I I don't think uh, many clinics in the developing world have any speech input, let alone skilled speech therapists. And if we can leverage computer science, AI, those kind of things, to evaluate kids and come up with a diagnosis and a treatment plan, I think it will do a lot of good to many kids around the world. Hmm. All right. So last question. Thank you. Thanks again for your
0: guys' time. Um, and maybe you guys can answer this separately. Um, let's, let's go with the, uh, the SLPs first. Um, what's one thing you'd, you'd say uh, other SLPs who don't specialize in BPI uh, tend to misunderstand about it?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, unfortunately as speech language pathologists, we don't get a ton of training in actually listening to the very specific differences and the types of of resonance disorders. So, um, you know, it, it, sort of is something that you need to listen to pretty frequently. We can, um, even Caitlin and I are, are doing this all the time, but sometimes our ears will Will sort of tend to fear one direction or another. So we frequently need to recalibrate between each other too um, to make sure that what we're hearing is actually um, you know as close as possible to what the child is producing. So I I think it is it's really important to understand that um, you know if you do have concerns for this hypernasality that you do try to refer to a team that does this. Um, And uh, I think it's probably important too for speech pathologists who aren't frequently doing this to maybe not try um, to make decisions until they've had some formal training and experience working with this. Um, Another thing that would be helpful for other speech pathologists to know is that if we're just hearing hypernasality only, that's not really something that speech therapy alone can fix. So speech therapy can fix a lot of things. It can fix articulation. It can fix language and fluency. Um, sometimes it can fix the, the nasal air emission, but it can't fix hyper-nasality on its own. So um, we, we try to make sure that children don't, don't get referred unnecessarily for therapy to work on exercises and things that may not actually improve the child's resonance. Mm-hmm.
0: Actually, I'd say I, I definitely misunderstood that myself. Thank you. And uh, let's finish with our ENTs. Uh, what, what would you guys say uh, ENTs who uh, don't specialize in this care tend to misunderstand about it?
4: I think kind of piggybacking off of what Courtney was saying, you know, I think that the team, the team aspect of this is very important. You know, I, There are kids, I, I remember one or two kids I've seen where uh, I thought I heard maybe you know, a little bit of hypernasality or a little like nasal rustle right, you know, at some point during the exam, but no, we don't have time to do a full 30 minute speech assessment. And, you know, you know, they've had their parents have noticed kind of abnormalities in their speech. And so, you know, I've had sent them to, you know, VPI clinic, and then once they've done a full assessment, they've noticed, you know, they may have a little rustle here or there, but overall, you know, they don't really have VPI, but, you know, even myself seeing these kids all the time, I, you know, I can kind of mishear it. And so I think having a second set of ears, second set of eyes, Really helps, I think especially if you're going to recommend, you know, a surgery. Um, you want to make sure that you have had a good, thorough assessment, um, so you make sure you're doing the right thing.
3: And 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 just to add uh, one aspect that I think we frequently go back to, and that is, uh, VPI is not about food coming out of the nose; it's a speech issue. So we want to avoid sending kids who are babies and don't speak. They have to to speak and say, uh, you know, say a good number of words for us to evaluate them. Having said that, I would encourage um, ENTs to refer rather than not refer. I think it's, it's a clinic where we have to accept that in order to find the uh, the children we can help, we may need to see many children who, um, you know, don't do not have BPI, but still can be helped, but in a different way. That's excellent. Well, thank you everybody for your time. Uh, this
0: was personally very educational for me, and I know our sentec members uh, will learn a lot from this as well.
3: Uh, so thanks again. And thank you, Giovanni. and thank you, everyone. Have a good evening.
1: Yes, thanks, everyone,
4: for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye.